Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in. We had an awesome interview with a fellow student from Palmer. His name is Geronimo. He's basically a genius. Uh, we talked about rehab, about research, and just tips on how to be smart, basically. And also, uh, here shout out to Parker, who is his birthday today. And yeah, that's about it. I hope you enjoy. Give a small introduction of who you are and what you do. My name is Geronimo. I'm a quarter three student at Palmer, Florida. Uh, I grew up in Palm Beach, I went to UCF, and now I'm out here doing the whole student thing. <laughs> Good old 561, baby. Yeah, 561. Hell so, yeah. Why Palmer? Um, I went to, uh, I was applying to PT schools and also DC schools, and I was working for ADC at the time. Um, I was running all his rehab, and what I realized after learning more about rehab and learning more about all of the bad things and all of the types of professions um they i eventually was like i don't want to work for anybody where i can't treat how i want to treat um i don't want to work for anybody that's going to make me do a certain treatment that i don't agree with so i saw that um while being a dc it gave me a better option to be able to start my own practice and practice how i want to so that's why i chose dc over pt and i just chose palmer because it was the closest school we're on the same page here at least i am yeah, I would say the same thing. When it came to your experience with uh, working with the DC, and I, we know that you do a lot of research, uh, where would you say you found the most material to form your opinion? Um, while I was working, um, it was a lot of googling around. So he went to he went to national. So he didn't um, he didn't have any of that philosophy stuff that I had no idea about. Um, honestly, at that time. Um, we just disagreed on some other stuff about long care plans and um, how long, how much people should pay for long care plans three times a week, like for three months type of stuff um, for anybody that came in. So at first it was Google um, just because I wanted to be better at rehab. That's how I found McGill and McKenzie and Liebenson and all the different stuff that you'll Google when it's like somebody has knee pain what do you do and the first books you'll see in all of those books so i just started reading by myself i found a couple of facebook groups um found other students and doctors that i wanted to listen to sort of asking all the questions um the biggest thing i really recommend is if you find somebody and you have a question email them this is not kim kardashian it's not like kanye west where like they're not going to look at their email they're normal human beings that are perfectly okay with students asking questions with anybody asking questions because they're trying to spread the word as well um, they're lost, some, especially Kairos that are stuck in an island. Um, they're trying to find like-minded people as well. They're going to reply. And the only, th that and the only other thing that I would recommend is if you can ask a question on Google, ask it first on Google before you spend their time emailing because they're not going to answer every single question you have. So you might as well ask the questions that matter and not the ones that you could easily find <laughs> just Googling around. Yeah. That's awesome. Like, honestly, that's the one thing that I personally need to get over because every time I think I'm going to waste somebody's time. That's why I wanted, yeah. I always refrain from reaching out. Uh, what are some questions would you say would be more informed versus non-informed? Well, I would, um, 
I would start with, it just kind of depends on what type of base of knowledge you're coming from. So once you get over the the whole like philosophy stuff, that's the mm. first type of step that you have to take, um, kind of decide what you believe in. And then it just kind of depends. You start reading the books and you're like, oh, this makes sense. Um, it really worked a lot for me because I was reading the books and immediately applying it to my patients. Mm-hmm. So I was seeing what was working, what was not working. And then I started um, really asking why. Why did this work? Um, what mechanism works for this? And then when you start reading the research, you're like, oh, wow, like it, you know, some of this stuff, like we don't really know why it works or what it's doing um, and stuff like that. So then you start asking those questions and you can get down many, many different rabbit holes um, just by asking some of those questions. Um, but I would recommend everything that they send you, read it. If they recommend a book, read it. If they recommend an article, read it. Because people will ask these questions and then they just won't do what they're told and they will stop replying to you because you're obviously not reading what they're sending you. Right, right. So Go I'm going to ask a question here. So why do you think exercise works for pain? Because we know the research is kind of like limited or maybe it doesn't support a lot of why it works. We know that it works, but... Why do you think is the mechanism behind of why it works? Um, I actually, I don't think that, um, I don't think that exercise works any better than anything else for uh, immediate pain. Um, I think what you are treating is function. If you're trying to treat pain, just wait six weeks. Mm -hmm. 80% of people get better anyways. Um, Sure, there are some things um, that you can find um, if they have a certain directional preference and stuff like that, that will help symptoms a little bit. But most of the time in the research we see, manual therapy, exercise, all of those things, when you put it against natural history, they really don't change all that much. Um, what I do think exercise does is it makes you feel really confident in yourself and really confident in your body. And all of these movements and all these different stuff that you do on a day-to-day basis, if, if I can lift, if I can deadlift uh, my body weight, I can for sure pick up a bottle of water off the ground mm-hmm. and that's not going to scare me or play with my kid outside or do any of these things that just require you being reactionary and not having to double think, oh, I can't pick that up because my back's going to hurt. That's what exercise, I think, does is empowers people to be able to move and be able to be confident in their body. If that also helps pain because they get more confident, maybe. But I think that what we're treating mostly is function and people's ability to be empowered and feel confident in their body. And sometimes pain goes away. Sometimes it doesn't. But either way, it's not something to be fearful of. Yeah. It also gives patients or people or clients, whatever, self-efficacy, which we know mental therapy doesn't give a lot of self-efficacy. And that might be one of the reasons why it works better, because we know that self-efficacy has a lot to do with positive outcomes. Yeah, I... A lot of with self-efficacy is probably the main thing that's catastrophizing for um, risk factors for chronic pain. But um, the whole manual therapy thing, I think mostly it's being against the bad narratives more than it is being against manual therapy. Um, I have no problem with somebody rubbing on my neck or um, adjusting my back or thrusting my back. Um, just also use that time that that manual therapy used that got you that that little bit of time um, without that sensation that sensitization to have them move have them do the movements that they're scared of because if you don't do that it's just going to be a constant cycle and because since they're coming in to you for you to quote unquote fix them now you are you are possibly causing somebody to go towards the chronic pain side mm-hmm. because of that 100 percent so we all could be on the same page where patient education is the top tier of how we're going to get people better. 
what does your conversation with your patient look like when it comes to patient education? So I think it it, it matters. I, one of the when you first learn about pain science, it's like you want to regurgitate all this information because you think it's so cool. And <laughs> and I did the same thing, and I have friends that are like that when that that I talk to that are have nothing to do with like this profession and stuff like that, and they'll still make fun of me talking about oh, so it's all in my head because I didn't know how to regurgitate that information. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest things that Philip Snell actually said it perfectly about pain science is that pain science is awesome. You need to know it as a doctor, but sometimes it's better to just shut up Mm -hmm. and it's better what you don't say. Pain science to me is more about what you don't say than what you do say. Um, But to answer your question, the yellow flag questionnaire that Annie O'Connor made and right now the best evidence-based one is to start back um, that, that is showing that you answer, I think it's like eight to 10 questions, depending on which one. And depending on how you answer those questions, that if you are a score really high on that, you are a higher risk for yellow flags, which is your psychosocial stuff. At that time, you know that that patient might actually need you to challenge some of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. But if somebody scores really low on that yellow flag, which most people usually do, and if you talk to that person, you see that they might have some beliefs that you don't necessarily agree with, but they're not going to harm them. You mm. can't challenge every single belief of mm. every patient because people don't do well with having their beliefs challenged. And I don't think that you need to challenge every belief of that patient in order for them to get better. There are some people that you are going to have to challenge them. A lot of that you have to talk, but also violate their expectations with exercise mm. because sure, you, you you think that this is going to hurt and we do some stuff and we warm up or whatever type of school uh, of thought you want to you want to apply to, whether it's DNS, McKenzie, any of that, you do all of that and then you go and you pick up a dumbbell or you pick up a kettlebell off the ground, whether it's even 35 pounds that you were fearful of, that just violated your expectations. That right there is enough buy-in for you to understand maybe there's more to this, maybe I'm not broken. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think that education comes in is um, showing them uh, what they can do for themselves but also, we don't have to change everybody's beliefs in the world. Mm-hmm. Although we, I would love that. I think that would do great for um, chronic pain and stuff like that for people to understand. Not everybody is ready for that. Mm-hmm. And you're going to lose more patients than you are going to help because you're gonna, they're not going to be okay with being challenged. Stuff that is in our society. The way that we think about some stuff so yeah and if you try also you're not going to change anyone's beliefs because facts alone don't change beliefs so mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty hard job to do yeah there's some great stuff out there greg layman on his website has the free workbook um it's a good one the explain pain the first the, the first one not supercharged the first one is more geared towards patients um but all of that type of stuff is probably more towards a chronic pain type of patient that is going through central sensitization. So a lot of the stuff is about, hey, we're going to live well with pain and not so much that we're going to get rid of your pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a completely different subgroup of people. Uh, but like I said, for most people, I don't think that you need to pain science the crap out of them. Yeah. Um, although I would love to talk about that stuff. I think you're going to lose more people than you're going to help. So, like, just to, to revisit what you're talking about, and it comes to uh, pain science, um, would you? So, you said like it's not about all what's in your head, or it's mm-hmm. it's all on your head. Uh, how do you get to somebody that's completely not willing to listen to you? Do you vet your clients, or do you try to? So, with with stuff like 
your yellow flag questionnaire will be in your in your intake form so you'll kind of know who might need something of that mm -hmm. um analogies work really well depending on it has to be patient specific depending on what analogies they need to hear um you don't what you don't want to do is you don't want to tell them that because of this disc herniation they're going to have pain for the rest of their lives um you don't want to fear monger them into stuff that honestly isn't backed by any evidence and all you're doing is getting them to be scared of, of different things so i wouldn't say you, you're vetting them with and but what you're doing is you're just having conversations and if the conversations lead one way then you, then you go on with the conversations and if some people really want to know about every, how everything works, not just pain science, but just biomechanics and all that stuff. Some people really care about that stuff. Some people just want to get better. Um, so it just kind of depends on what type of patient you have. Hmm. What's, what's your, uh, your, your, if we had to build a pyramid with the base being what you would think is the utmost importance and then the tip being maybe just some accessory, uh, accessory work, where do you think, what would be your base when it came to patient care? First, clear the red flags. Okay. So you make sure that it's not actually anything dangerous, which usually it's not. It's like whatever, one or 2% of the people mm -hmm. that you see, um, if, if even that. Um, after you do that, um, acknowledge and listen. Listen mm -hmm. to the patient, um, listen to, because they're gonna tell you everything that you need to know and more and uh, about their treatment. Ask them their goals, figure out what they wanna do. Um, do I have questions that you your go to is like if you didn't have pain right now what's the one thing that you would want to do um, how and build your plan on how to get back to that so if they want to play with their kids you need to get them in positions where they're going to be with when they play with their kids and you need to um, do those things in the clinic um, before they do them outside of the clinic so a lot of uh, that I just took Nicole Sardekas of ACL uh, class and what she said is she doesn't want any of her athletes the first time they do something after an ACL repair is to be in practice or in a game she wants them to do it in a controlled setting of the clinic I think we can take a lot from that is hey you're going to be playing with your kid let's see if you can pick up 25 pounds from the ground 35 pounds for the ground let's see if we can get into some lunges let's see all these different movements that you're going to do let's see if we can get help you figure out ways to get off up uh, and off the ground um, depending, maybe somebody's acute right now and they're sensitized to, to flexion. Let's let's do some stuff where we can teach you how to move around your life um, for a little while to not pick the scab, as McGill calls it, an extension. And then we also need to educate them that this is not going to be forever. That your spine and your all, all your limbs and everything can move in so many different ways, and that it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, but there's certain times where we need to keep away from from a certain from flexion or extension or different movements just so we can let the the, the desensitization process go down um but it's not going to be forever so i would say it would go first clear the red flags then find out all of the stuff that creates that person what they want what their likes or dislikes are what they expect from you how how fast they expect it mm -hmm. um and then you build a plan around that I mostly go towards the active side. I am not against the passive side, but I if you if you never ever had to have somebody do one or the other, mm -hmm. I would definitely say don't do the passive. Um, but it's that's not how clinic works, and that's not how life works. And some people are going to expect more passive, and that's okay because passive can lead to active. Mm -hmm. uh, there's sometimes. Um, and this is one of the questions that I always ask when I go to any seminar 
Um, usually you can go and hang out with the whoever the co person is that's hosting the course and the person that's um, teaching the course after. And the first question I always ask them is, okay, I know that you're that you're all into active care, all this. When do you actually use manual therapy? What type of patient comes in? And almost everybody usually says, sometimes they just need some T-spine extension. And yes, we can do some exercises, but I can also just blow up their T-spine and we can move <laughs> on with the day. And it'll literally take me 20 seconds, if not less, to blow up their T-spine. And they have this newfound range of motion and now we're doing exercises and now we're picking stuff off the ground. Now we're doing all these different things. Sometimes it's just easier to just blow somebody somebody's mm -hmm. spine up and yeah. then and then you move on. Yeah. So that's where I would put put it. I would say clear the red flags, um, talk to them, psychosocial factors, figure out the lifestyle choices. It's all about creating habits. It's all about long long stuff. Um, doing things that they they're going to do and they're gonna like to do, and then doing those things usually through active care through different types of exercises that they want to do i don't not every single person needs to lift double their body weight deadlift not every single person needs to be a a six minute mile runner it's just whatever you like to do let's get you into preparing yourself for your day-to-day -day tasks and then if if it's easier to get to certain some some of those exercises through manual therapy that's where i would put manual therapy do you have a specific screening process when it comes to patients screening or or... screening process um not really um they would do you would do your intake form um which covers a lot of your red, red flags and then covers your yellow flags and then you just you just talk and listen usually mm -hmm. the patients will tell you yeah. all of their symptoms um what what is going on and what you should do about it and how to best do it so they can feel like you listen to them What's your future way of practice look like? Are you doing maybe like I'll see you once every couple of weeks or? I, I think that also depends on the patient. Right. Um, I've seen both extremes. Um, I The whole three times a week thing, that is okay to me if somebody's really acute and they really need that. Um, I don't think it needs to last very long for most stuff or unless you're really bad. But most people don't need you to see you three times a week, right. um, especially if you're showing them different things. If you can, that, that's another thing that you need to do is you need to be able to provoke their pain and you need to show them things that they can do to get rid of their pain, um, at least their symptoms. If you, can't if you can't provoke their symptoms, you don't know what the diagnosis is. You right. don't know what's wrong because you don't know how to provoke their symptoms. Um, so you, you start with that and then I would say that it just kind of depends. If you're working with lifters, it's so much easier because you know they're going to go do things. So that's how Jacob Harden's running his stuff right now. He's working mostly with lifters, and most of them are just – it's bad programming. Mm -hmm. And the it's overuse injuries um, because of their bad programming. And so they'll have this, like, year-long elbow pain doing overhead presses. And all you have to do is change the range of motion right. and then just – find range of motion that's okay maybe bring down the load a little bit and hey look you can do in a certain range of motion you can do this let's start here next week let's go down to range of motion next you don't need me for that if you want to pay me to be a rep counter mm. sure pay my <laughs> hourly rate to be a rep counter that's fine i'm cool with that but you don't need me for that so he the way that he sets it up i like it too is um you pay me for how much you think that you want to see me. If you think that you need me to be a rep counter, that's fine. You can come in and if you need that, there are people that need you to do that. 
that's fine. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you can go out and be a little more autonomous and do stuff for you, I would rather that. And you can come in again in two weeks and something like that. See how you're doing. It just completely depends on the person, though. Some people need more one-on-one help. Some people need that. Some people are like, okay, I can do this. I know how to do this. I can program myself. Or you can, if you're into that, um, you can program for them. Um, You can see a strength coach. Um, because a lot of the lifting community, it's just bad programming mm-hmm. is what it is. Um, and then the general population, they're expecting the they're expecting you to get them out of symptoms fast, um, or at least they should be. And it, like I said, it kind of depends on the person how much they really want to see you. But one to two times a week, maybe the first week or two, and then after that, you should be getting into stuff to where they can really take care of themselves at home. Mm-hmm. So that's where I would be at. Um, I do think that I do understand that that is hard to do as a person that wants to keep their doors open. Mm -hmm. Um, That is why I really, really think that's valuable for students to get into strength and conditioning because that allows you to then be able to quote-unquote treat people, a.k.a. coach people, under a certain salary amount or what they're paying for you for, for you to essentially train them. And do it ethically. So now people can see you for the rest of their lives as a coach and it's ethical and it's great for them. And if you are into doing like group trainings and you get five or six people and then you see them and they can charge you, they can charge you less Mm -hmm. and you're going to do great things for them because you're going to program them while you know them individually, you know, all those things, you're going to be a better personal trainer than anybody that's around you. That is how I think ethically you see people for a long time and really, really help them change their lives. What, what exactly drives your research? Obviously, there's the interest, but like, how do you generate a topic that you want to look into? Um, at first, I think it was I knew you needed to find a baseline of knowledge. So all of the questions I had, I needed answers for, um, whether that was subluxation theory, whether that was should I spend my lo- um, bend my low back, um, whether that was um, disc herniations, and all of the baseline knowledge, I think you need to get there. Now, it's most of my research is driven by Twitter. Honestly, I could not recommend Twitter enough. Um, If you do not have a Twitter, get a Twitter. I don't care if you tweet. I don't care if it's not even your name, if you're an egg on Twitter. Literally get on Twitter because if you're not on Twitter, you are behind. And what you do is you follow all of the researchers you like. You follow all of those top clinicians because what happens every day? They just spend all day. I don't I don't understand how these people even work, but they spend all day arguing nuanced topics with each other in a completely civil way. And you see one day you'll just see Greg Lehman, Craig Liebenson, David Poulter, Jan, Jan Hartsvigan, just all talking about all of these things, quoting research quote quote unquote arguing with each other but they're just talking and they're working through things and you can literally just be a fly on the wall Mm -hmm. every single day for hundreds and hundreds of the biggest experts in the world and if you're not doing that it's free you just have to be a fly on the wall and eventually you'll feel confident enough to actually put in some input and they will reply to you and it's nobody will ever care whether you're a student whether any of that there if you can bring something to the table they will be like oh that was a good idea Blah, blah, and you keep talking. So now all of the stuff that comes out and they post, so researchers will post their research there first or like immediately as it's released. Yeah. Um, and then people will talk about it. So now it's really driven by Twitter. I mean, there's three or four articles a day that they'll be talking about. Um, 
and sometimes I'll have enough time where I'm just going through them. And um, I think it's really cool too. What I'll do um, is I will read the article, I will make my own comments, and then I'll go back and read the the Twitter thread on what and see if I had the same, I took the same things, um, because reading research is a it's something that you learn. It mm-hmm. is not something that just comes. It doesn't matter how much times you sit in a certain class and they're teaching you ANOVA and MANCOVA and all that stuff. <laughs> you need to get better by doing it. Yeah. Um, I'm not great at it, but I'm a lot better than I was six months ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm a lot better than I was a year ago. And I'll be a lot better in six months from now. And you just have to do it in order. Um, but you need to fact check yourself and see. Because if not, you don't know how to, how to get better. So when I read something, I write down my notes and I, I go and see what um, Layman saw from that, what he took from that. Why did he take that from, from that article? And I'm like, huh, okay. So that gives me, oh, I missed that. Oh, hey, we both got this. Oh, I, I feel good about myself. We both saw this exact same um, data on there. So that's how, I, how I'm now doing my research. But you need to get to the baseline. You need to ask the questions, whatever questions you need to ask yourself to get to that baseline because if not you you won't know how to interpret if you don't understand like the imaging research um about disc herniations about all types of imaging it's really hard for you to keep up with some other stuff because they're expecting you to already Mm -hmm. have that knowledge Mm -hmm. which is where the intro of a lot of research articles comes because now i usually if i don't have time i will just read the methods and the results i don't need to know anything else the intro the discussion and the conclusion are really opinionated so that's what happens is people will just read the conclusion even if it's not the abstract they'll open the full text and just read the conclusion that is whatever that author wants to tell you about the conclusion exactly the methods and the results that is the data yeah so what happens in the intro that that will they will link all the different research articles where to where they got their hypothesis so that'll that'll work too is if you really like an article and you're reading the intro and it's like, huh, there's another article to read. There's another article to read because they're they're citing all the articles yep. that got them to that question. Mm-hmm. So that'll open up a whole no- another rabbit hole if you want to go down whatever rabbit hole you're reading at that time. Um, so that intro will give you the the gist of what you need to understand, but you need to go and read those articles because you don't even know if what they're citing is actually true from what from what that other article found. So that's where like systematic reviews come in and stuff like that. So you can see the big picture yeah. of a lot of things. It, it seems like, uh, so you said you take down notes every time you mm-hmm. go through a review and, yeah. and research articles. How often do you go back to your notes just to see if you retained it? Um, so what happens is uh, there's an app. Oh, there's a bunch of apps. The one I use is Mendeley. Um, no free ads. Um, <laughs> and so what happens is you you can download the PDF on there and you can highlight stuff. You can make comments on there. Um, and I don't, I don't read, you should never ever have an opinion, especially a strong opinion on something that you've only read one article about mm. because it's not about one article. There could be an article tomorrow that tells me that whatever drinking alkaline water will cure cancer. That's not going to change. I don't care if it's an RCT double blinded with N equals like 3,000 whatever yeah. studies, it, that's not going to change the totality of the evidence. It's just going to be a data point to the right. evidence. So you need to get the totality of the evidence, and usually it's be from a, a bunch of different types of evidence too. So you can't just look at the discarnation evidence. You also need to look at um, the pain science uh, and the biomechanics and all of these. You need to bring those all together to get the totality of the evidence. So I think that's the, the thing that most most people miss. So 
yeah, I do go back and read, um, especially ones that fit my bias, of course, so I can add to my add to my bias. Um, but what what I'll do is I will read a bunch of different articles that that's how I that's how they got to, hey, maybe MRI imaging is not all that important. They didn't do that because of one article. That was the last 35 years of not just MRI imaging, but X-rays and all that stuff that showed us, huh? All of these people that are asymptomatic have this, huh? Even the people that are symptomatic, they get asymptomatic and they still have this. 10 years, now there's an, uh, a research article that just came out that they used 10 years down the line. Mm-hmm. Having a, uh, a symptomatic disc did not change any different over 10 years. So it's like, hey, now we have this all this totality of evidence. Look at all of this. You can't deny all of this. Um, and yeah, there will always be outliers because of mythology or just because of what they choose of certain articles. But if you are only looking at one, you're doing yourself a disservice. So I don't always go back and read every single article, but mm-hmm. I've got so many articles on that one topic that formed my opinion on that. Right, right. Do you have like a – so for example, like my, my research drive, I basically have a uh, a topic and then that, that's its own folder and then yeah. I have like kind of like a – a word doc kind of just saying this is what all this is kind of meaning is that how you structure your work so with my mendeley app i literally just um i just have a a a folder all different folders so it'll just be like i have a low back pain folder of a pain science acl achilles um tendinopathy and some of them kind of mix and match Mm -hmm. so it'll be like pain science but about low back pain so i'll have i'll just put it in both so if i go and click on pain science and i click on low back pain like it'll be in a pain science folder it'll be in a low back pain folder um so i don't care about doubling up um and some of them are in three and four different folders but when i'm going looking for it i won't remember where i put it i know that i have it somewhere in there so i'll go looking for a certain article to read um they're all in in, the, in those folders. You should just be a, a rep for Mendeley at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, they're great. Um, somebody, I think it was Taylor Eckel. I think mm, you know her. She was from, the, from yeah, from Clinical Athlete. Um, she's said it in in some podcasts like a year ago or something like that, and I immediately downloaded it and I was like, oh, because like I I would I would read the articles and I would have it, but you would never be able to like pull them up when you needed it, and you couldn't remember who the author was, and you couldn't remember, and it was like oh like I can't even make an argument anymore, and like mm. how are people doing this? And then I realized everybody just had hard drives or they had these apps, and I'm like no wonder. I was like, hey, how are you Computers. guys? Computers. Yeah, yeah, I was like, how are you guys doing this? How are you guys just pulling these things up? Like, because there's there's some like the the big ones or the ones that are most fit my bias. I can pull those up real quick. Right. But um. But other ones, I, I couldn't remember, like, where I read this. And I was like, oh, did I really read this? Or I'm just making this up. Like, and I'm like, no. And then now I have them. I mean, I have, I have like, I think almost a thousand now on my phone. Wow. Yeah. So aside from Twitter, if you had to just, like, synthesize down to just three top resources or books, where would where would you say, like, this is what you need to be a clinician? Um, If uh, – let's separate. So let's separate this. Uh, I can't give you three <laughs> top so books. Much. Okay, so three <laughs> top books. Um, I really like crisp. Um, it's not enough for you to only read crisp and go out and be a clinician, Mm -hmm. but that is going to give you a really good baseline of a really good assessment that you can do really quickly. Um, the crisp books are awesome. Um, he's the guy that runs the university of Pitt's um, um, primary spine practitioner program. Um, so he's awesome. Those, those are awesome. Uh, explain pain that Mm -hmm. it makes it so easy. It literally just explains everything, all the neuroscience, and also gives you all of the stuff that you can explain to your patients and analogies. Um, those two books, I 
I love Rehab of the Spine. The new one is about to come out in December. It's a hundred and it's fifteen hundred pages. I have not read it, obviously. Um, but I what I like about Rehab of the Spine and the way that Craig runs his everything, honestly, Craig and Craig will tell you this is he literally says, I am the biggest thief that there is. I take everything good from everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't listen to whatever I I don't think is good from them. So he takes the best from McKenzie and the best from DNS and the best from the strength and conditioning world and the best from Boyle and Dan John and all those things. And he puts them all together. And that's the way that he writes his books. The book isn't just Craig Levison talking. He grabs Sue Falzone. He grabbed Mike Boyle. He'll grab Greg Lehman. They'll all have a different chapter in the book uh, depending on what their expertise is. Mm-hmm. So now you have all of these experts writing about what their most, ex- like their, the, their most um, knowledge is about. And now you have this book of all these different things. That's gold. Um, so yeah, so that one's coming out in December. His um, his third edition, the second edition was is, is great. So I'm expecting third edition to be even better. Um, and then I would say Facebook is okay. Um, Facebook is okay depending on what groups you're in, but it's Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to get that much from it. Twitter is the biggest one. Instagram is great for making friends. Um, because you need people that are going to challenge you. Um, hang out with the clinical athlete guys. Talk to the barbell medicine guys. Talk to a- anybody that is willing to challenge themselves. Um, so that's where Instagram is good for. I love the clinical athlete forum for that because people don't expect you to reply right away. So like on Instagram, whoever replies the quickest wins. Mm-hmm. On the clinical athlete forum, what happens is they'll they'll post a subject somebody will post some sort of subject and people will talk and they'll they'll send you this is why i think of i have this opinion and put it to research articles so what do people expect you to do go read those research articles it's going to take you a day or two Mm -hmm. and then come back with a reply so some people might not like the forum because it's not like a twitter feed where it's just like bang 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 sometimes the conversations might last two weeks but guess what people are reading the research people are actually giving real life experience and not just, Hey, I'm louder than you. Yeah. So <laughs> it's actual informed opinion. Yeah, exactly. Um, that one you have to apply and I, it costs a little bit of money. Um, so to do the same exact thing, but for free barbell medicine has forums on their website yeah. that are free. Um, and they have a pain and rehab forum that you can go and you can ask questions and you can also see how Michael Ray and, um, Amato talk about that. Um, talk about all all different things and you can ask all the questions you really want and then people um, answer on there um, like I said email email if you have a question and it's actually like something that you can't find off Google um, especially if you can start citing stuff on why you have this opinion and why you're challenging yourself people will reply everybody that I've ever emailed has, re- has replied and I've emailed the top of the top I mean Leonard, if for the for the Cairo students like Len Fay, the guy that started MoPal, I I sent him a, a large article about motion palpation and why I believe this and why that, and I I, I wanted to challenge motion palpation, and, and he was like, yeah, I agree, and this is awesome that you sent me this, and then he sent me a bunch of citations back on his opinion on why this, and he treated me like I not like a student, like we were hey, having a, uh, like a yeah colleague, like we we're having this discussion, um, and he thanked me, he's like, this is awesome, like if. Um, you need, uh, I hope everybody like, you know, is asking these type of questions nowadays because people weren't asking them in 1950s or whatever. He, when he started all that stuff, um, with the internet now, like there's no excuse for you not to, not to be doing that. Um, so there's that email shadow people, um, not just DCs, not just PTs, shadow strength and conditioning coaches, 
um, learn, ask questions while you're there too. Don't just shadow to to shadow. Um, ask questions. You should be there paying attention and should be asking. If you're not asking questions while you're there, you're not paying enough attention or that person isn't intriguing you enough and so you should stop shadowing that person. Yeah. Um, and just keep keep on challenging yourself. It's all out there. I mean, there's millions of books. There's millions of research articles out there. Um, millions of people to, for you to talk to. So just keep, continue to challenge. There's you, there is no right answer out there. There is no certainty out there. Um, at least there's not in 2019. Maybe in what, whatever 2025. Maybe we'll we will have it all figured out. But we don't right now. So that should excite you into the fact that you're in a profession where you are going to probably be asking questions for the next 50 years. Which is what I I, I like so much about Liebenson is. He brought Yonda over here. He went over to Prague and brought Yonda over here and Carl Levitt. And then he went into Canada and brought McGill over here. And he's got rehab of the spine and functional training and everybody. He was at LA Clippers, um, DC. Um, he was basically the reason why DCs even do rehab because he was doing it in the 80s. He was the one bringing all of these guys over here. Um, he was the first McKenzie um, chiropractor, all these different things. He's still on Twitter asking questions to random people and discussing things and still learning at the age of like 60 something where mm -hmm. he could easily just be teach courses um, every once a month in different in a different city or he even teaches out in like China and stuff like that and be at LA Sport and Spine, which is this clinic in LA and make all the money he wants and easily do that. But no, he wants to learn. So you need to learn. He, he always says, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all. Yeah. And so if you were doing that, you were, you are in for the greatest next 50 years of your life. If you enjoy that, if you don't, you're probably in the wrong profession. <laughs> that's really how it is. I think that's everything I needed to ask you. Yeah. You good? Is there something else you want to talk about? No, not, not really. Just that, that's the main thing is there's no certainty out there. So for people to tell you that the reason for pain is this, you know, they're lying. <laughs> Yeah, they're lying. There is we don't know why why this happens. Mostly, honestly, the biggest risk factor for pain is being human. Yep. It's going to happen. <laughs> um, you shouldn't fear it. Um, you know, it's not because your bones are out of place. It's not because <laughs> your muscles are tight or you need to release something or whatever. None of it's none of those things. So that is that's my biggest. That's the hill I'm willing to die on. I'm gonna thank you once, twice. Once we get off this podcast again. <laughs> Thank you for taking your time. Anytime. I've been enlightened. I, I wanted to continue this conversation off air. And hopefully we can do this again next yeah, time. Yeah, always. I'm always on to talk. So thanks, you guys, for having me. And this was a lot of fun.